You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Stephen Miller, the Trump aide known as the architect of the former president's anti-immigrant policies, is reviving his cultural crusade as the head of a new activist legal group. America First Legal is a conservative nonprofit with disdain for the radical left and a wide-ranging plan to challenge the Biden administration in court. The group has already scored some early victories, including in lawsuits accusing the federal government of discriminating against white business owners. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Eric Larson. Tell us who Stephen Miller is for those who may not know. So Stephen Miller is a conservative political operative who uh, served as a senior White House aide to Donald Trump um, and also was a speechwriter for the president. Um, he is known as uh, the, sort of the architect of some of Trump's most uh, anti-immigrant policies, uh, things like the Muslim ban and uh, the family separation policies and some of those really divisive policies that really riled up a lot of Democrats. Did he start America First Legal? He did. It was just started in April. Um, he uh, did, did so with the blessing of uh, uh, Donald Trump, who uh, issued a, a press release praising his effort and the opening of America First Legal. So it, it is. He, he's leading it, uh, and uh, he's doing so uh, with several other former Trump uh, administration officials uh, who've joined him in the effort, including a former acting U.S. Attorney General uh, Whitaker and uh, some other folks. He's not a lawyer, right? No, he's not a lawyer. But he, he has a former Justice Department lawyer during the Trump administration, Gene Hamilton, uh, who was known for working on a lot of immigration um, policies uh, under Trump, um, is one of the lead lawyers um, at America First Legal. So there are established right-wing legal advocacy groups such as Alliance Defending Freedom and Judicial Watch. So why another group? 
well, that's a good question. Uh, some folks that I spoke with uh, in the conservative uh, nonprofit group there said that uh, even though there are these other groups, that they still feel like they're outgunned by um, left-leaning organizations like the American Civil Liberties Union. You know, they want to see something that rises to that level. Even though America First Legal has just started earlier this year, that's how they kind of already want to, to be seen, as really going after the Biden administration on a range of policies the same way that the ACLU did um, during the Trump administration. So what are some of the aims, or maybe I should say targets, of the group? They're pretty wide-ranging. Uh, it started out uh, with lawsuits against the administration challenging uh, racial equity programs that had been built into the pandemic relief uh, bill that had earmarked uh, billions of dollars to uh, be prioritized toward minority-owned restaurants in one provision and uh, minority-owned uh, farms and ranches in another. And he sued, filed separate lawsuits over both of those and actually won injunctions uh, preliminary injunctions against the administration in those cases, which are still pending. But he's also sued um, over the Biden administration's return to uh, policies that uh, ban discrimination against people based on sexual orientation or gender identity in health care and housing and the like. Um, and, you know, that's just the beginning. There are several other um, aspects of uh, the administration that he seems to be eyeing based on the press releases they've been putting out and the Freedom of Information Act requests that they've been filing and highlighting on their website. You said they have scored victories. These are cases where they can pick the judge or at least the courthouse that will be hearing the case? Yes, they've been filing uh, suits in Texas where they can, but also um, in Washington, D.C. federal court. Um, in the, the, the two cases where they did get these preliminary injunctions granted, those were in Texas. Um, it was uh, a Republican-appointed judge who, who did that. Uh, but not all of their cases are before um, Republican-appointed judges. But so far, they've had pretty good luck with those in the suits they have filed in Texas. Um, another case where they, they didn't get an injunction, um, but they did get a, a preliminary um, ruling um, where the judge you know, seemed to praise uh, or side with uh, what they were saying about the Biden administration's handling of undocumented migrant children at the border. Um, that was another one of the first lawsuits uh, that AFL filed, um, accusing the Biden administration of um, allowing um, undocumented migrant children into housing in the U.S., um, even though they might have COVID-19 was his argument that it was a, a health violation. And the judge in that case um, said that, that uh, uh, he agreed, essentially, with that case. And that case, did they do it in conjunction with the Texas attorney general? They did. And uh, the Texas Attor Attorney General Ken Paxton, a very outspoken Republican, of course, who has challenged Biden on a range of issues um, and is very critical of the administration on his own right, um, you know, filed that lawsuit. It, it challenges provisions of the Migrant Protection Protocol, which was a Trump policy that Biden tried to walk away from and is having trouble doing so. And so AFL, one of their first clients was the state of Texas, which in a way isn't too surprising because they're extremely ideologically aligned. Eric, tell us more about Miller's suit challenging pandemic aid earmarked for minority-owned farms. 
America First Legal filed a couple of lawsuits over provisions of bill, the massive stimulus bill passed by Congress. It included a few um, equity programs in it that tried to essentially right some wrongs that had been done previously by prioritizing some money for minority-owned restaurants as well as minority-owned farms and ranches. And in these two lawsuits, uh, Stephen Miller's group claims that it's discrimination, racial discrimination against white people that he says is banned by the Civil Rights Act, which is kind of interesting that he, you know, the, the complaint itself was actually fairly short, but it included some language and references that you would normally see in a suit alleging racial discrimination against racial minorities. So it's kind of turning it around and using it sort of against these minorities' interests, um, which really wasn't lost on the people, uh, some of the people who I interviewed for the story. Um, I interviewed the um, John Boyd, is the president and founder of the National Black Farmers Association. He filed a motion to intervene in one of those cases, and he and he he won that permission. And he says that it's just flat out discrimination. That that the real discrimination here is with Stephen Miller's lawsuit. Um, that uh, they're trying to pretend that there was never any discrimination in the past, and therefore there should be no measures taken now to fix it in the present. Did uh, AFL respond to this? I see that their website says it's committed to fighting for all Americans, regardless of race, color, religion, or creed. That's correct. I included that in my story because, unfortunately, they they didn't respond to repeated requests for comments. I I reached out to them numerous times by phone and email, also to their PR firm, and they just didn't respond, although they do make regular appearances on on Fox News and Newsmax and OAN um, where they spread this message. And, uh, of of course, we we have to remember that this is a nonprofit and they're actively raising money at, at, at all times. Do most of their cases focus on on immigration? You know, I really don't think so. I think that that, um, you know, is an obvious interest of uh, Stephen Miller, and they do have one or two cases related to that. Uh, But really, they're looking at the whole uh, universe of conservative concerns, um, you know, gender identity, um, LGBT rights, even critical race theory, um, some of the Freedom of Information Act requests that they've filed are demanding, you know, information from the Biden administration about why they stopped investigating the source of COVID-19. Um, you know, they even sued Biden for forcing uh, Russ Vought um, off of that naval board. Um, and he's a, he's a member of AFL, one of the directors. Uh, so there's really just a really wide range of um, legal issues that they're looking at here. And it's not just immigration. Do we know how much funding they have and who is funding them? We don't. You know, I would have definitely loved to have asked them that question to find out, um, but uh, it's too early. It's, they're too new to have any um, filings. So we really just have, have no way of knowing, unfortunately. Because for a new organization, they seem to have a lot of litigation going on. Right. I mean, it's, you know, anything is possible. Of course, we know one person who has uh, plenty of money. That's Donald Trump. Uh, he, they, they always could have gotten some from, from him, but that's just speculation. Uh, but they are doing a lot of real work, and that does cost a lot of money. Um, so it, it, one can assume that they at least have something that they started out with. Is Trump a visible supporter of the group? He is, um, only in that 
their very first press release that went out in April um, quoted President Trump uh, you know, praising Stephen Miller by name and uh, saying that the left was uh, outfunding us in courts, us being the right, and that we needed something like AFL to counter that movement and to, to take the Biden administration to court. Trump spelled that all out and said that Stephen Miller was the guy to do it. You write that prevailing in court might not be the primary reason for the group. Yeah, that was a, that was one theory from someone I spoke with. Uh, you know, they see the names involved. They see there's quite a bit of, of evidence of people in Trump's orbit, uh, sort of now that he's out of office, finding ways to sort of cash in uh, using his name and tapping into his huge support. Um, you know, he has millions of supporters all around the country, and a lot of them are very angry, and a lot of them really despise the left. And if you say the right things, do the right things, you can really capture their attention and uh, get them to open their wallets. So there's some, you know, some cynicism around that, of course. They probably would say the same thing about people on the left and the ACLU. <laughs> <laughs> Do you get any sense that what they're doing, the cases that they're bringing, are any different from those of Alliance Defending Freedom or Judicial Watch? I would say that they seem to be signaling that they're going to be a lot more active than those groups and that they're going to be looking at a much wider range of issues and that they're going to be really focused on the issues that in particular really seem to concern the the far farther right individuals. So whereas you might see some of those more established groups might be focusing more on uh, you know different policies that maybe aren't quite so controversial. Uh, I don't think that's going to be a concern of AFL. So did anyone you spoke to think that this was a short-term endeavor that possibly it won't last past 2024 when Trump will decide whether or not to run? Someone I spoke to said that it's possible that they're just looking for, you know, a paycheck and waiting to see what happens uh, in 2024. And maybe um, they'll be, you know, back in power and get bigger jobs in the administration or something like that. Um, but even if they were able to do that, even if Stephen Miller, you know, made a triumphant return to the White House, I wouldn't be surprised if they found some way to keep America First Legal, you know, still going and, and, and doing what it what it does. Um, but right now they need a boogeyman, and that's Biden, and he's in office. If that changes, who knows? It seems like their cases are anti, anti-abortion, anti-immigrant, anti-LGBTQ, that they're fighting against other people's rights. That's the big difference between what the ACLU did uh, and what America First Legal is doing. Of course, the ACLU was raising the alarm about concerns that rights would be taken away. And in fact, that was the case. That is what the Trump administration tried to do. AFL is focused on the concerns of really mostly, you know, white people, uh, straight white men in particular. That seems to be their, their focus. Thanks, Eric. That's Bloomberg legal reporter Eric Larson. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. 
And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. It made headlines when Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman were arrested in 2019, boarding a plane with one-way tickets to Europe. Prosecutors claimed the pair had made donations to American politicians to advance the interests of Ukrainian officials. Now, Fruman has pleaded guilty, and Parnas's trial seems to have morphed into something different altogether. The government's case has almost nothing to do with Ukraine and instead focuses on political contributions allegedly intended to help launch a cannabis business. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Christian Berthelsen. So, Christian, tell us what charges Parnas is facing at trial. Yeah, so that's a, a strange one. I, you know, Lev Parnas and his business associate, Igor Fruman, were charged two years ago. And, you know, they, they were involved in Rudy Giuliani's efforts to dig up dirt on Joe Biden in Ukraine. And this was sort of a subtext to the whole first impeachment trial of Donald Trump and the quid pro quo he was seeking in Ukraine to get damaging information about the Bidens prior to the election. Levin and Igor were working with Giuliani to try and facilitate that. They were actually arrested uh, with one-way tickets to leave the country, getting on an airplane in Washington, D.C. The government alleged that they had been working for Ukrainian officials uh, to advance their interests in the United States and that they were played a role in the firing of the then U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yovanovitch. All of those allegations were then sort of quietly dropped from the case about a year ago. Uh, Mr. Fruman pleaded guilty. Um, Mr. Parnas just started trial yesterday. But the charges against him now involve allegedly illegal campaign donations he made to try and advance a cannabis business in Nevada, California, and elsewhere. So it's a very different case than what prosecutors said it was when they charged it two years ago. Is Furman going to testify for the prosecution? No. So two of the defendants in that case, there were four defendants. Two of them have pleaded guilty. Neither one of them pleaded guilty with a cooperation agreement. So they are not expected to become government witnesses. During the trial, is there going to be a lot of mention of former President Trump or Rudy Giuliani? One would have thought that, uh, given the way the case was charged two years ago. But no, as we get toward trial, one of the prosecutors told the judge last week that Mr. Trump and Mr. Giuliani are going to be peripheral figures at best. Do you know why this case took such a turn? The prosecutors, when they dropped that allegation from the case, offered no explanation as to why they were doing it. Uh, They said they were streamlining certain factual assertions, and they left it at that. And they have declined to say anything beyond that. 
so that is really not much of an answer uh, and sort of leaves it open to speculation as to why. You know, they do have the the evidence in the uh, campaign finance charges, and that's an easier case to bring. And potentially what they could have done is sort of just wanted to charge and try an easier case rather than getting into issues that the defense could have raised about, you know, doing something in, on behalf of the president and, and whether that then became acceptable. I don't know. I, I don't think anyone knows outside of the office why they decided to do it that way. And what's Parnas's defense? So the campaign charges involve uh, funds that came from a Russian investor in the cannabis business and that were then used to donate to certain state politicians around the country. His defense is that uh, there was no conspiracy to do that, and the funds that were donated did not come from the Russian businessmen. There are two defendants. Are their defenses united? Are they working together? They're actually not working together, which has been an interesting development and only become clear in the last week or so that the other defendant, Andrei Kukushkin, basically says that he was a victim of Lev Parnas and that this entire scheme with the campaign donations was really just a scheme to get money out of Mr. Kukushkin and his Russian investor. And in fact, of the million dollars that came from Russia, a little over 100,000 of it actually was donated to politicians. Uh, The rest was diverted to other purposes. Let's turn to one of the witnesses who will testify at the trial. Adam Laxalt, who's running for U.S. Senate in Nevada, I believe. So why is he testifying at this trial? That's correct. He's expected to testify today. He's kind of an interesting figure because he was attorney general and running for governor of Nevada uh, when he received donations from Mr. Parnas. And he, uh, of course, then went on to become a co-chair of Trump's re-election campaign in Nevada and fanned a lot of the voter fraud allegations that Mr. Trump was making in an effort to overturn the results in Nevada. The prosecutors have asked the judge to keep the questioning away from that issue, uh, but the defense wants to raise it because they think it goes to his credibility as a witness. Coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show, I'll continue this conversation with Bloomberg legal reporter Christian Berthelsen, and we'll talk about the new U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York is the most high profile of the 93 offices around the country. Known for policing Wall Street and prosecuting high profile cases involving terrorism, organized crime and public corruption. Damian Williams is the first black person to be in charge of the Southern District in its 232 year history and one of the youngest. I've been talking to Bloomberg legal reporter Christian Berthelsen. So tell us about his background. Well, he's born in New York, New York City, uh, grew up in Atlanta. Uh, His parents uh, are immigrants. Uh, He's quite a success story, Harvard undergrad, Yale Law School, uh, clerked for Merrick Garland uh, on the D.C. Appeals Court, uh, and Merrick Garland is, of course, now the Attorney General. He uh, has been a U.S. attorney for about 10 years uh, and was elevated first from being a line prosecutor to the co-chief of the securities unit, and from there to head of the entire office as of last week, confirmed by the Senate after being nominated earlier this year by President Biden. 
Would you say that he's been the star of the U.S. Attorney's Office? Certainly. I mean, you know, the Southern District U.S. Attorney's Office uh, has a reputation as being sort of one of the most elite offices in the country, partially because of, you know, being here uh, in New York and being sort of the law enforcement uh, overseer of Wall Street. And within the office, the securities unit is viewed as sort of the most high-profile unit. Uh, so Mr. Williams was a line prosecutor in the unit following the financial crisis and did some of the office's uh, most high-profile cases. They included uh, the conviction of the guilty plea of a sitting U.S. congressman for insider trading, other cases against hedge funds for insider trading and mismarking other forms of securities fraud, and another big case involving uh, circulation of non-public, highly sensitive information from government agencies uh, to hedge funds that inform their trading ahead of major decision announcements. So he's taking over at a time when there's been some controversies. Yes. Well, you know, the past four years under the Trump administration uh, were challenging for the Southern District. Uh, They included the unceremonious firings of two U.S. attorneys during that period and, uh, you know, a fair amount of meddling from Maine Justice in the affairs of the Southern District, Uh, the pardoning of defendants who were convicted by this office, including Steve Bannon, uh, Mr. Trump's uh, sometimes political advisor. And there have also been missteps by the office itself. There have been multiple cases in recent years where the office was found to have withheld important, potentially exculpatory information from defense lawyers for defendants that were being prosecuted by the office. And it has been castigated by judges in this district uh, for not playing fair. So there is a fair amount of work to do in rebuilding the reputation of this office, both with the public and with the judges who, who oversee the cases they bring. Is he stepping into a role in an office where there's a morale problem? Yes. People who have left the office say that the lawyers who are there have have been having morale issues, uh, partly, you know, the same way everyone has with this pandemic and through remote work. But the hits to the office's reputation from the evidentiary issues, uh, everyone has taken hard. And the meddling that came from the Trump administration uh, has also weighed on morale there. So, Yes, I, you know, people say that the new U.S. attorney has a fair amount of work to do in trying to restore that office to its prior heights. The Southern District, known for prosecuting Wall Street crimes, financial securities, fraud, during the Trump administration, those crimes are not given the same attention. Any indication what he's going to focus on? Not really. Uh, you know, there, there's no public hearings for uh, U.S. attorney nominees. So uh, he hasn't had a any kind of public airing of, you know, his record or, or what he sees as the office's mission. You know, obviously he has been talking to uh, former leaders of the office, uh, former senior officials there, uh, friends, colleagues, uh, in the months since his nomination as he sort of puts together uh, ideas for how he wants to lead and what he wants to focus on. But the people who have had those conversations with him have 
not wanted to go into great detail about them and feel like he should be given room to set those priorities and announce those things himself. He just started in the job on Sunday, so he hasn't himself uh, held any public events yet to articulate that either. Tell us what high-profile cases there are in the office right now that he's going to be overseeing. Well, as you were saying, enforcement of white-collar financial-type crimes did fall precipitously during uh, the Trump administration. Part of that is because, you know, those types of cases tend to come up when you have downturns in the market or downturns in the economy, and that hasn't been the case in the last four years. So there is a, a bit of a cyclical ebb to it. However, you could also infer that it just was not a priority of the prior administration to bring those kinds of cases. So I think you could expect to see an effort to uh, bring more of those. You know, this office works particularly closely with the SEC. Uh, and Gary Gensler, the new SEC chief, has identified areas that he sees as ripe for greater enforcement. One thing that he has focused on is insider trading by corporate executives outside of established 10B5 plans where CEOs have pre-established plans to sell equity that they accumulate in their companies. But you'll occasionally see them either changing their plans or trading outside of their plans. Uh, and sometimes if that is time to market moving information, that's something the SEC wants to focus on more. And typically the way that, that works is that, you know, the SEC will bring its strongest cases where there is ev evidence of criminality to the Southern District and they do those cases jointly. Uh, so you could expect to see cases like that. So the ones that are in the works, Julian uh, Maxwell Jeffrey Epstein's alleged wrangler of underage girls uh, that's charged and is coming to trial this fall. There was a recently charged case, a corporate case, uh, involving an electric vehicle company and whether that was misrepresenting its results to the market. But there is kind of a dearth right now in big cases with a lot of public attention to them. Thanks, Christian. That's Bloomberg legal reporter Christian Berthelsen. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcasts. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to join us weeknights at 10 p.m. Wall Street time for the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.